Welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's Book. So, welcome back to another episode. This week, I'm actually going to record two chapters because uh, they're both a little shorter than my average, so we're actually going to record chapters uh, 9 and 10 of my first novel, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars, otherwise known as Chaos's Beginning. Something else I'm working on right now is just trying to research a little bit more on how to get published and go about that process again. So just to kind of keep any of you listening up to date, you know, that's what I'm up to these days is reading, researching, and uh, working on my query letters and hopefully uh, getting some more queries out soon to agents so that I can possibly uh, get some representation for this book. But in the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing, for subscribing, for being part of the uh, chaos family, I guess. So, uh, yeah, if this is your first podcast, thank you for tuning in. You can pick up all of my podcasts. They're available as MP3s off of my website, www.narclaninc.com. That is www.narclaninc.com. You can also find me on any podcast feed, on iTunes podcast feed, Android podcast applications. I am out there under Chris Reed's book or Chris Pullman, P-O-H-L-M-A-N. I am trying to record an episode a week about... And I think I'm getting better at that. I apologize for some of those earlier episodes where I wasn't, but hopefully I will keep doing about an episode a week. And I think pretty soon I will be coming out with a new, um, basically episode zero. So right now we have episodes one through eight. This will be episode nine, which will cover chapters nine and ten in the book. But I'm going to add a new introduction to the book, which will then... Uh, predate all of these podcasts. So, in the meantime, though, the two chapters that I'll be reading today, chapter 9 is titled Soup with Chaos, and chapter 10 is titled Martian Vegetables. So, let us begin with chapter 9, Soup with Chaos. Chaos was seated at his desk, a data tablet in each hand. He looked at one, then the other, and back. Some figures were encouraging. Others weren't. They had managed to take the entirety of South America before James and Meng could mount a viable defense. They were still managing a tough resistance along the Panama Canal, though. Damn it, Chaos thought. If only I hadn't sent the other companies away. But he had seen this coming. Neither the TDF nor the government knew his true troop strength. What he had amassed while they moronically resupplied him implied for more time to bring him in. Fools only did me a favor. Columbia went much easier thanks to them. Chaos is proving difficult to bring in. We need more time, he mimicked in a whining tone. Two full battalions of nanitics. He had managed over two thousand troops, three-quarters of which he had sent off. 
three companies each to Europe, Africa, and Asia. While he fought the TDF forces here in Panama, they would build strength, emerging when James and Meng had been drawn deep enough into this region. Then he could spring the trap. They'd be weakened elsewhere around the globe, giving his Nanetics the additional time they needed to come into power. His command company was holding, having sent one of his other two slowly around to perform a northern flank on the TDF, the other to begin building a base of operations in North America under Matthew Welsh. It would become dicey if the timing was off. He had everything planned out so carefully. It was, however, true and glorious Naninic on Naninic warfare right now. Full-blown battles raged for days without stop, lasting through the night. Even as his troops fell, some dying, Chaos could feel himself becoming more powerful. He knew his plans were working. His aide came in. How he hated relying on others. But he knew from experience he would neglect himself dangerously if someone didn't shepherd him. Sir? Shall I bring supper? Without looking up, Chaos grumbled. (laughs) What mutant slop did the cook prepare tonight? Salsa on a shingle? Churro pancakes? Queso con queso? With respect, sir, he he does his best with what little we have, the aide said meekly. He knew how Chaos's last aide had been retired. The man had been a bit too forceful with Chaos. His arms? Mama had a baby and his arms popped off. <laughs> Grudgingly, Chaos said, I know. What is it? Beef soup with bread, sir. A few chunks of meat and water, a few vegetables for necessary nutrients, spices to cover up the lack of flavor, and bread to make you forget you were filling necessary dietary gaps with carbohydrates. It had to be done so his other companies would arrive with sufficient supplies to get started. How distasteful, though. A command company eating the lowest. Pathetic. Bring it. The aide left. Chaos put down one tablet and focused on the other. Casualty rate up 5% over the last three days. To be expected. They had taken control over the western mouth of the canal and were being beginning to ferry forces to its northern side. It was a maneuver meant to fail, but also one meant to pull in more of the TDF's forces. As such, those ferried forces were taking casualties. It was war. Soldiers were injured. They died. When enough died, markers on maps changed sizes or were removed altogether. But they weren't at that point yet. Baker Company Command Battalion would be in place in two days. Assuming the TDF didn't reinforce too heavily before then, their canal forces would be caught between two companies of Chaos's elite and would be crushed. The TDF would then bring in reinforcements by way of Mexico, hoping to mass sufficiently to counter this sudden increase in Chaos's forces. They did that. Chaos would rear flank again with a small number from Matthew's contingent, drawing attention north. Keep poking the beehive little at a time, and larger responses would come. Once, James and Meng committed enough troops to the New World in hopes of countering the guerrilla warfare of Chaos, he would unleash his global forces. A few months at the outmost with nine other companies of Ninetics. Such would be enough for a foothold. At that point, the government, becoming fearful, would return to diplomacy, predictably. Chaos would use the time to grow his forces, then the true war would begin. If he couldn't get more Ninetics quickly enough, he would turn what he had into battalion and company-level officers, having them lead conventional forces globally. 
His subsumed plants in South America were already producing weapons for that contingency. If it never came, he could always sell them to collectors, or the independent militias he was thinking of goading into existence once in power. It all formed such a beautifully straight and organized path in Chaos's mind. A bowl, bread, napkin, and spoon were set before him. Hmm, he grunted. The aide left again. The tablet showed markers of major TDF concentrations along the canal. They weren't massing like he wanted them to. Not enough of them. He'd poked the beehive plenty hard. Where were the drones? Was this Poland again? Had Nelson turned into Chamberlain? No! They had opposed him after Nelson's little post-Columbia speech. They were tied to action, fighting his forces, especially after his Anschluss-like absorption of all South America, was their only option. His other tablet chirped. New data. Switching them, he became instantly apocalyptically angry. <laughs> intercepted! One of the many troop transports carrying his anatics to Asia had been intercepted. And sunk! All hands lost? How? Why? <laughs> he exclaimed, snapping the pad in two between his fingers. It chirped at him again, displaying another ship reported lost before going black. Aid! In here now! The aide scurried in, presenting a figure at a trembling imitation of attention. I just lost two transports for Asia. Two! How did this happen? The aide couldn't form words, he was so scared. Internally, Chaos smiled. You know what I want you to do? The aide again tried to find words, but couldn't. Fix this! And this! He added, throwing the broken pad at the man. The aide caught it and ran out of the room. Get my XCOM in here! All of them! Someone had to have messed up. Who would pay for this? He had put nanitic covers on those ships, people whose power made the ships virtual holes in space-time. Not even Meng should have been able to see them, see their course. Chaos's analytic mind kicked into high gear as he tore off a chunk of bread. But he can see their eventual impact, and he could feed that data into James, Chaos thought, and his mind is better yet than mine. He smashed the table with his free hand, causing the spoon to somersault off the table into the bowl. James would be able to work backward with the data, plotting plausible courses for ships to carry troops from Columbia to their intended ports. And with that knowledge now confirmed, James and Meng would know as fact that Chaos's forces were larger than those they faced at the canal. His plans were slipping from his grip. Where's my XCOM? Chaos raged at his aide in the other room. They're on their way, sir. Remember, some of them were online, the man said delicately. See? Chaos said to himself, chewing another chunk of bread. Tearing off a person's arms can be motivating. James and Mang wouldn't mass forces in the New World as Chaos had wanted. His plans had to change. They would need to crush the TDF's forces here and begin their march northward quickly, taking the whole New World and deprive the TDF of even a beachhead. And if he could take America... Take out their heart. Take out their will, Chaos thought around a spoonful of soup. I should at least be able to count on one company reaching each continent, he added to himself. But conventional war is so messy. He tapped out commands on the surviving tablet. New orders went out to the field commanders. They would make sure these new plans succeeded. They had, after all, also heard about how his last eight had died. Even Naninix weren't willing to see what Chaos was capable of. His ire fell slightly as he felt his XCOM gathering. 
They would talk with each other, plying his aid for information before entering. It was their way. Fine. The soup became a relaxing experience. Chaos identified all the scant spices. Pepper, salt, garlic, some basil. Celery, potato, and onion floated in the broth. Watery as it was. Somehow Chaos felt revitalized, despite the fact that he was having soup. It's all connected, isn't it? He thought, staring at and stirring the brown substance in his bowl. As I change things, stir them up. They change each other. Each has an impact on the next. An infinitely long chain, as James had said. I can only see parts, though. That's unfortunate. Chaos knew his amplified powers weren't the most dominant or most accurate that existed on Earth. But he wouldn't give up the idea that if he pushed himself just a little more, spent a little more energy, melded with a few more minds, that he could come close enough to the power some held. He looked down and realized his soup was gone, as was his bread. The bread had had a slightly sweet and pleasant aftertaste to it. The cook did do a fairly good job with what he had. Setting everything aside, Chaos turned his attention back to the remaining tablet, watching as the battlefront began to shift, his officers following his new orders. The TDF forces would have been taken by surprise by the new ferocity with which Chaos's forces attacked. That element of surprise was now used up, though. He could not count on it to win a battle again. Noise in his assistant's office told Chaos his executive committee had fully arrived. In a voice soothed by the soup, he said to them, Come, we have new plans to discuss. His aide, if not his commander's, should certainly be thankful for the change in tone. And all from soup. Chapter 10 Martian Vegetables Eric had risen and beckoned me sit at his kitchen table while he put something on the stove. He hadn't done more than chop a few items from his fridge and add them to a pot he likewise pulled from his fridge. After a lengthy discussion on the finer points of nanite technology and terraforming, both because of the concentration it had required to keep up with Eric as well as the time, I found myself hungry. As I scrolled notes, Eric tended to his cooking. Soup should be about ready now, Eric said in reply to the loud growl from my stomach. Care for a bowl? He reached into a cupboard to the left and pulled out two oversized mugs labeled in equally oversized letters, soup. I decided that after the ordeal Eric had put me through that if he was offering me food, I'd better take it. Sure, I said. What are we having? Well, simple vegetable soup made with a milk whey base. Here. Eric handed me a bowl, plunking a soup spoon and torn off hunk of French bread into the bowl. Let me know what you think. It's a recipe I've been working on a while. I almost feared the question, but asked anyway. How long of a while? Oh, seventy-three years come Earth standard August, he replied. I knew I would regret the question. I began eating, trying to figure out what all he had put in the soup. Enjoying it? Eric asked as I continued to sip at it. Yes, I said, still focusing on the cornucopia of flavors. Pepper and garlic were definitely present. I could plainly see leafy parts floating around the bowl, as well as cuts of celery and onion. There was more depth, though, to the soup than just that. A savory element kept my mouth watering, even as it was full of yellow-white liquid. No, you're not, 
Eric sat around a mouthful of soup-soaked bread. You're analyzing it. You're losing some of the flavors when you do that. Treat it like a magic show. Don't try and figure it out. Just enjoy it. Leave the worrying to the chef. Eric did have a point. The soup was delicious, and if I were to keep focusing on its taste the whole time, I would be done with it before I could enjoy it. I took a moment, closed my eyes, exhaled slowly, then inhaled the aroma wafting from my bowl. There you go, Eric said. Don't try and figure it out. Just welcome it in and let the smell happen. It was delightful. Somehow I suddenly caught myself remembering the kitchen back home when I was a kid. Mom tried to add her own flair to dishes, but normally ended up ruining the dishes in the process. Synth food had everything it needed in it anyway. At least I had thought so. Even a steaming bowl of synth miso couldn't hold a flame to the rapture of scents my nose was experiencing. Faintly again, there was pepper, garlic, some rosemary, a hint of parsley. I opened my eyes, surprised. Found more when you weren't looking for it, right? Yeah, I did, I said. That's how Mango tried to describe his prescience to us. If he tried to force it, he would lose focus on the very thing he sought. If, however, he just let prescient thought waft over him, he found what he was looking for every time. Took me a long time to understand that and build the same sort of discipline. Soup helps, though, doesn't it? Eric asked Riley, taking another spoonful. Once more, I felt the professor in him coming through. Don't let me stop you, he said around another bite of bread. Keep going. Let go and taste it, he told me, motioning at my bowl. I closed my eyes, dunked my spoon, and brought it to my mouth. The aroma again wafted before me, bringing to mind some of the plants I had seen in Eric's living room. I took in the soup, letting it sit on my tongue just long enough, chewing slowly on the bits that needed it. Celery, onions, broccoli, a milk and muskiness, some mushroom slices, as well as a taste of potato. Swallowing, I felt the soup warm my throat, then my stomach. Experiencing the soup this way somehow made me feel re-energized. Sometimes the simple act of letting go, of living in the moment, is all that is needed to sustain and recharge us, Eric said clearly. As my eyes were still closed, I guessed he must have been watching me and reacted to the expression I had shown. Soup itself is quite a thing. It doesn't have much substance to it, really, Eric said, to some dipping and splashing. Opening my eyes, I found him ladling his soup with his spoon, watching as it fell back into the bowl. There are larger chunks, smaller chunks, spices, dissolved bits, and then the water that makes up the bulk of it. And yet, lacking such substance as this, he said, holding up what remained of his bread, it is still vitally re-energizing, isn't it? He expected no reply, so I didn't try to give one. Eric quietly finished the rest of his soup and bread, as he had admonished me to do. The presence this, this man exuded was completely unique in my years of experience. Something about him engendered a whole host of emotions and empathies. Watching him eat, though, one came through stronger than the rest. Loneliness. 
We finished our soup in silence and continued so for a few minutes. Eric had turned out, turned to look out of his back windows into his yard. There I could see his small personal garden, along with his few fruit trees. Not in a typical sight these days, such a use of a yard. Ever think about those? Eric motioned toward his garden. How they got there, I mean. I actually hadn't. The first colonists, after all, hadn't come to Mars with much. And nowhere in the historical records was there ever mentioned a want for sustenance. I guess I just always assumed they were brought with colony missions. My mind traced back to Eric's comments about the terraforming process. Such would have been done with plants meant for harsh environs, not temperamental plants as crops. I'm sorry to say it this way, but do you really think the first colonists, construction workers and the like, would generally have had the know-how to breed plants native to Earth to survive here on Mars? Between the differences in soil, gravity, and season length, Earth crops just didn't do well. Sure, when you get summer here, it lasts twice as long, and so you have double the growing season. What do you think that does to crops, though? They're still used to a set season length. They grow, produce, then die. Martian varieties have double seasons, though, I commented. Naturally. We engineered them that way. Twice as long a year here, twice as much food needed to get you through that year. So... Why not take advantage of the extended summer seasons? So it was your people who modified the crop strains? Yep. Didn't have time to do it in the old-fashioned way, though. How's that, I asked. The old-fashioned way. Selective breeding. Forcibly crossing plants that began producing again instead of dying at the end of the season. We went a different route. We used nanites to go in and forcibly reprogram the plants to produce twice in a season. Took a little bit of trial and error, I'll admit. Pesky bugger, that swish in their genome. For being such well-understood organisms, plants are still annoyingly complex. So what you're saying, I said, suddenly wishing I hadn't put my note tab to sleep while eating, is you basically created those, pointing to Eric's backyard. Martian plant strains. Yep, now it was us, Eric replied. What about the Martian-Terran hybrids on Earth? The immortal strains, Eric replied. Those were a product of our tinkering once again with the nanites here on Mars at the university. Ironically, we were just looking to create new strains of crops that could withstand, or rather tolerate, larger temperature swings and so have an even longer growing season here. We quickly figured out, though, that put in a Goldilocks climate on Earth, they would just keep producing all year round. I will admit, though, that immortal apples do taste a bit off. Never able to work that out before our research was shut down. Again. I remembered Eric talking about their attempt to revive nanite technology on Mars. So, are there still nanites guiding plant growth? I asked. Eric shifted his eyes back to me, a glint appearing in them to accompany smirk. Good question. We thought about it, but the result would have been introduction of nanites into the general human population, an eventuality we didn't want to have to deal with at the time. So, rather than doing so, we had the nanites self-terminate once the plant 
genomes were successfully reprogrammed. They've been out of any type of Martian crop for 200 years, hybrids for about 150. And I can assure you that there are no stragglers that didn't knock off. We checked. I assumed he meant him and his fellow scientists. So, Eric, I said, a thought occurring to me. If you've lasted so long, how many of the others are left? Eric's eyes took on a panged look before he quickly squeezed them shut opening them to look longingly again out the window. None came the slow, flat answer filled with some, the same loneliness I had felt minutes before. It was a loneliness that suddenly made sense. After our attempt to revive the tech was silenced, a few of us that remained decided to give up. The nanites proved long life, to be sure, but only if you allow them to. So you can, what, turn them off, I asked? Over the centuries of living with them, we gained deeper understanding of and control over them than we ever could have imagined in the beginning. Instead of needing an external interface to rewrite their base code, we figured out how to set up the same thing mentally in mind space. From there, self-adaptation of nanites was easy, including the ability to insert a kill switch. Long ago, we came to a realization. Humans are not meant to be immortal. So, not to open a further wound, I said, but why are you still here, Eric? Why didn't you allow yourself to go quietly into that dark night? Because I still have one last mission to complete. Once that is done, then I can rest. Why not pass it on to someone else? I said. Eric again turned his gaze back to me, a quirky, wry smile on his face. The nanitic life within me, the mission I have yet to complete, or both, he asked. I hadn't thought about the nanites yet within him. If none existed in the modified plants, and no more of the original nanitics of the TDF yet lived, then, assumedly, those still active within Eric were the last of their kind in the universe. An endangered species. Both, I guess, I replied. Soon enough, Eric replied, turning his focus back to his garden. When the time is right. He gazed at those plants as a father his child, seeing it grow up while also remembering everything that brought the child to this point in its life. All in an instant. I want, my mind once again caught a passing thought. The introduction of immortal Martian-Terran hybrids to near-equator regions in Earth had been an emergency response to the great crop extinction of the 2420s and 2430s, the very event that had precipitated the great Martian migration of the same period. These days, of course, Terran farmers were once again growing healthy crops, diversifying their strains using the wide variety of reintroduced heirloom crops. Eric, did you and your people have a hand, then, in helping to save Earth from the crop extinction? Beyond just the infusion of hybrid plants, I mean. Behind the scenes, yes. When we first came here, we brought as many crop species as we could, not knowing which one or which parts would be best suited for Martian life. Darn good thing, too, considering how dumb the Terran crop monitors had become. I felt a pang of disgust and self-loathing. 
my great-grandfather had been one of those crop monitors whose reliance on a single species of corn, potatoes, tomatoes, etc. had led to the near-instant death of all food crops on Earth. Not even the swift action of continental governments could stop the spread of necrotic disease that swept through all corners of the globe, leaving farmland completely barren in its path. Such a lesson in crop diversity had come at almost too high a price. So then you had a hand in the vegetable arc. Again, Eric smiled wryly. Sure did, Sonny. Ironic, isn't it? The exiles from Earth once again saving its sorry butt. Kind of like the cast-out child coming back home to care for its parents. In truth, had it not been for us, all crop agriculture on Earth would probably have gone the way of handwritten correspondence by now. With how humanity is trending these days, what a shame that would have been. An undercurrent of sudden cynicism had worked its way into Eric's voice. What do you mean, how humanity is trending? I asked. Eric turned away from his backyard to fully face me. And in his face, something had changed. Something was now there that hadn't been there before, not even during the odd episode where he had talked as a chorus and Eric's face held what it did now. Nearly dark foreboding, his countenance somehow seemed to dim his features. It was, it was as if an overhead light had been turned off. What I mean is that humanity is growing soft, he practically growled. For years, someone has always been there to hold up its weak and decrepit form. Ever on the razor's edge, humanity has, for a long time, had a steadying hand. It has weakened a once great people, once that was capable, under the right leadership, of taking on even those who were nearly superhuman. But the years have been less than kind to we evolved apes. What has humanity done in this time of crisis? Stood and fought it? or rather ran off to save havens among the stars. Only the weak flee their homes under duress. The strong-willed stand and fight to the last man, if necessary. Yet glowering, he said oddly, I recognize you, faintly, as though I once saw you through, through a foggy spyglass. Then, once more, he was silent, a light seeming to come on over his head, again illuminating his face. His countenance changed, and once again he had an expression of trying to remember a dream. He looked at me questioningly, realization draw dawning on his face. I'm sorry about that. It's part of what's going on inside you, I asked. Yes, it is. Can you tell me? Eric stared into my eyes, a gaze that seemed to penetrate to my very soul. It's not yet time for that, he replied. I, I need a few moments to think. Would you mind waiting for me in the living room, he asked, nearly absent-mindedly as he rose and headed out his back door. I could feel a warm spring breeze filter into the kitchen, bringing with it that ever-present odor of rust. Sure thing, I barely managed before the door closed grateful for the chance to try and put to memory what had just happened. I sat in my chair in Eric's living room. It was quite odd, two different abnormalities that I, was, I had seen now. 
I suppose schizophrenia would be the closest approximation. Well, somewhere within me, I understood that what was going on, what was happening to Eric, had a deeper meaning than I could possibly fathom. And, after all, one's countenance may change with alternative personalities, but not the color of one's eyes. And after very careful reflection, I decided that while the seeming dimming of Eric's face would also fit such a hypothesis of something else, it surely must have been a cloud blocking the sun. <laughs> after all, how could light actually retreat from around a person? Such couldn't happen, even in this new world of wild possibilities into which I was entering. Or so I thought. After getting my thoughts down and writing some notes on questions to ask Eric later, I found myself focused on his small shelf of houseplants and herbs. Some were just beginning to flower along with the change in season. Others had new buds forming, showing signs of growth yet to come. Even on the edges of the shelf there stood sprigs of plants suspended in water, root systems beginning to grow. The plants outside in Eric's garden, with their greater tolerance for temperature extremes, were already growing small sprouts that would become vegetables and fruit. These, though, had to be domestic varieties, a variant of Terran heirloom strains which had been tuned to the double-long Martian seasons. Suddenly I realized something about the plants. They were all drooping. With as much care and attention as Eric had been paying them earlier, this seemed quite odd. As I stared at them, though, they seemed to begin to strengthen. Stalks seemed to straighten, leaves to stiffen to an unexpected, outstretched winnowward. I heard the back door slowly open and close as Eric entered his kitchen, poured two glasses of water, and rejoined me. So, he said, handing me a glass, are you okay to keep going? Sure I am. Are you? I asked. Yeah, I'm fine now. Just needed a minute to center myself. The plants on Eric's stand once more had their healthy pink-green glow. Do you have anything you need to attend to at the university? I said I wouldn't want to keep you from students. Actually, my time there is over. Shall we continue? That was chapter 10. Hopefully, uh, the attentive reader, the attentive listener, will start to hear some things, some similarities between those two chapters. And I intentionally wrote them juxtaposed, both dealing with soup for a reason, just as another hint. But in any event, thank you again for listening. Thank you for sharing this podcast with others. Please head over to my website, www.narclaninc, that's www.narclaninc.com. There you can find links off to my Facebook author page, to my fa- uh, my author Twitter account, to my YouTube account, where I will put up videos as often as I can. I need to get in the habit of that too. I apologize for that. I will also be getting a link out there to my Patreon account. Patreon is basically an ongoing Kickstarter campaign where you can pledge amounts of money per episode I put out and you can cap your pledge to a monthly amount. So that way, if I happen to put out 20 episodes in a month, you can still cap off your monthly contribution to, say, $5. I'll be putting a link over there to Patreon 
so that if you really enjoy this podcast, you can help me keep making the episodes. Please connect with me on social media so that you can keep up to date with what is going on with my books. For instance, if I happen to get an agent and get this published, you can be one of the first to know when that happens. In the meantime, stay tuned for more episodes to come. And thank you again for listening to this episode of Chris Reed's book. I will see you next time.